I'm just piggybacking on the back of uh, of the worship that we all partook in. Uh, just a Christ-centered worship. It was fantastic, and I was thinking that it was it embodied exactly what we're going to talk about today. It was it was the skies declare the works of God. This is who you are. You're the creator of heavens and the earth. And then it was Jesus. This is who you are. You're God, but you're the suffering servant. And I've just been been centered in the last few weeks upon that truth. And I've been reading a book called Jesus and the God of Israel. And uh, I've been on this journey. John 4 has bothered me for years because I would read it and I would just kind of go, what is the big deal with this story? And why do... Why does most of the time when I hear it, no one talk about these concepts that are in this story? And it's just kind of this, yeah, Jesus and the woman at the well. And I, I begin to go through it and just begin to be pained, feeling as if Jesus was talking to me. I made myself the person at the well. Here's a Samaritan woman who was considered to be a Gentile, though they came from tribe of Jews that separated and split off back in the day that they were considered the scum of of the Jews and so Gentiles and so here Jesus is speaking to this person who would be a Gentile would be considered a Gentile on that day and so I begin seeing him talk to me in this way and that brings up just the first point in the notes there which is John 422 he says to the woman you worship what you do not know We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. So Jesus says to her, you have no idea what you're worshiping. You're trying to tell me about the God of Israel, that your fathers worshiped on this mountain and you're trying to give me all these answers, even to the point where the girl, the lady says, well, I, I know that Messiah is coming. Everything you're saying is great, but Messiah is coming, and when he comes, then everything will be made known to us. And Jesus looks at her and says, I am Messiah. And so that in that context, I begin to go, here is the person that she thought she was looking for that she thought she knew. She's telling him all these things about God, these different things, and throwing out these answers. But she had no idea that the Messiah was talking to her. She didn't know what he looked like. And so her idea of Messiah was off because she didn't recognize him. So my goal in today's teaching is to identify the God of Israel in Scripture, specifically and personally known by the Jews as Yahweh, A Western mindset has removed us Gentiles, I believe, from the true identity of who Yahweh is, thus distorting the truth that Jesus actually is Yahweh, or the God of Israel. I'm going to use the term Yahweh a lot, simply because we are kind of unfamiliar with that term. And when I say Yahweh, I want it to mean the God of Israel, because that's what it meant. That's what it's always meant, instead of just saying God. So the truth that Jesus is Yahweh, the God of Israel. In other words, I'm convicted that I myself and we do not know what we are worshiping. 
This oversight incidentally produces idol worship in our lives because we are worshiping an image of who we think Yahweh is rather than who Yahweh says He is. Based on these presuppositions, I want to crystallize in our minds that Jesus Christ truly was the God of Israel. In the Old Testament, and I seek to exhort us in the importance of worshiping Jesus in the truth of this identity. So in accordance with the end of that verse there, that the time is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So Jesus is saying, you're not worshiping the Father in spirit and truth. That's what he's saying to that woman. He's saying, but the Father is seeking those to be his worshipers. So first, we have to identify who God is, which we're going to get into in a little bit. Um. There's this story that I heard a long time ago that I, that I really love that I believe kind of puts the, the finger on, onto what I'm trying to identify today. So there's three men um, that are dead, I guess, and they go, they're in the waiting room to walk into the heavenly courts, and uh, they're being sent in one by one. And the first man goes in, and there's a man standing there. And the man says, Can you tell me about Jesus? Can you tell me who he was? And the man says, um, yeah, he was, uh, he lived a long time ago. Um, I've, I've heard about him in, ch- in church every, every Sunday. Um, pretty sure he died on the cross to forgive my sins. And he's kind of stumbling through it. And the, but the man's getting excited. He's like, yeah. He's like, tell me more. And he's like, um, well, I, I guess I'm supposed to have eternal life now because of that. And the man's excited. And he's like, is, is that it? The guy says, yes. Uh, and so he, the, the man's countenance falls. He says, okay. And the man walks out of the room. The next man walks in, and, and he says the same thing. The man looks at him and says, can you tell me about Jesus? Can you tell me who he is? And the man says, oh, can I tell you about Jesus? Like he was born 2,000 years ago, born of a virgin. Uh, his father was Joseph. They traveled. Um, out of their country into Bethlehem where, where Jesus was born. He was born in a manger. Um, and, and the man's getting so excited. He's like, yeah, t- tell me more, tell me more. He's like, oh, and then he, he's crucified by, by Pontius Pilate, stood before him. He had 12 disciples. And uh, he died on the cross. And, and because of that, I'm, uh, I'm supposed to be given eternal life because I believed in him. And, and the man says, is that it? And he says, yeah, that's it. And, and the man's countenance falls again. And he leaves the room. And the third man walks in the room, falls down on his face and says, my Jesus, my Lord, how I've longed to look upon your face. And that's what I want to pinpoint today. Do we know things about a man? Do we have his identity right? Do we include the things that we think about Jesus into his identity and that makes him Jesus or that makes him God? Or are we worshiping the God of Israel? Because that is the only God who is Yahweh, who is Jesus. So why is this important? 1 Timothy 4, 3-4 For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, 
They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So, not enduring sound doctrine, a, a, a doctrinal principle set forth by the apostles that Jesus was Yahweh, the fullness of God revealed in bodily form and to be worshipped forever as the God who led the children of Israel through the Red Sea. I don't mean to be shouting today. I know it's real boomy in here. I'm excited to talk about this. I want to have fun with this. I want us to be convicted and to reset our hearts to worship Jesus. Um, And so in that light, number two here, cosmogony. If we do not, cosmogony is just a, a fancy word or theological term for Uh, the study of beginnings, existence, how existence came to be. So if we do not believe that Jesus is God, it inherently affects the Genesis 1 account, removing Jesus from the picture of eternity. When creation becomes disfigured in our minds, it prevents Jesus from being worshipped as divine from the beginning. So if we have the beginning off, and Jesus wasn't God, then he could not have been there in the beginning, making him not God. It affects our soteriology, which is just the doctrine of salvation. If Jesus is not Yahweh, then we have no identity for who the Messiah is. And therefore, His identity as God can be held in question, meaning that we have no assurance today as Christians. We have no assurance of salvation. So He cannot be worshipped as the Messiah or as the God of Israel. That's a big one. I'm kind of doing past, present, future. Cosmogony, soteriology, and eschatology. This is what these is is what is affected if Jesus isn't God in our minds. And then our eschatology. If Jesus is not Yahweh, then there remains for us no hope for a resurrection. Becoming king of Israel is no king at all if he is not the one prophesied of by his father in Scripture. In this case, the scriptures are all unfulfilled lies making void the very reason for our existence as Christians. So, as Paul says, let us just eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Idolatry. According to the Scriptures, idolatry is the worship of anything and everything that is not Yahweh. Therefore, if we do not know what we are worshiping, we are worshiping an idol. Or a man-made, self-man-made, self-disclosed image of what we think Yahweh is that is not biblically accurate. So my point with that is that when we begin to define God, or we begin to define Jesus, um, because when we're introduced to Jesus, we are introduced to Him as this is your personal Lord and Savior who died on the cross for your sins, and that's excellent. But that is the end point for many people. And they never come to understand the fullness of who Jesus is. And that, in my opinion, you can't fully worship Him in the fullness of who He is if you stop there. If you stop at Christ crucified. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, you know, to the Jews it's a stumbling block, and to the Greeks it's just foolishness. And so there's... When we get saved as Christians, we, we almost can just stop there and live the rest of our lives, never defining the identity of who Jesus is. But when we do that, we, we have this, 
the, these scales on our eyes that prevent us um, from being able to accurately grab hold of faith in our own lives. When Jesus becomes the God of Israel, he's, He becomes so much more than just the personal Savior of your life. He becomes the... It, it's a faith that you can tangibly grab hold of. That I know this man can deliver me because he split the Red Sea in half. And he led a people through that sea on dry ground and they were saved on the other side. And when Jesus is that, well then, my whole paradigm changes because God, I know I can trust Him in other words. We spend a lot of time trying to define what God is and, well, is, is God really these things? But when we get the truth inside of us that Jesus is the God of Israel, um, who was Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth, that's who we worship, that is our Savior, then it takes root inside of our hearts and we can go through the trials. And I woke up this morning and, and I just woke straight up and burning in my mind was Matthew twenty four twelve, And it says, Because lawlessness will increase in the last days, the love of most will grow cold. The love of most will grow cold. Now, if this this scripture, if they ha- if the, these are people that have love, okay, so, and that's applied to the truth of Jesus in their hearts, I believe. These are people that have love, but because of lawlessness and trial, their love grows cold. That is one of the most shaking scriptures, because. If most people in this room, if most of your love grows cold in the last days, then how many people are left standing? If I ask most of you to leave this room right now, how many stay in the room? And I don't say that to your shame. I say that to make a point that God is specifically trying to warn us, and Paul as well, to grab hold of true doctrine, that it takes root in our hearts and that we stand upon it. So that we have something to stand upon in the last days. Because just the feeling of Jesus is my Lord and Savior, without any foundation, I I, I dare to say probably will not stand when the trials come. Because we don't understand His identity. So number six, monolatry. Is the exclusive worship, the exclusive worship of one God. This form of worship is what set the Jews apart in their day and must set us apart in ours. I seek to answer these questions in this study. And I'm just going to really answer question number one today. We're going to go through section one. There's two sections to this study. We're going to go through section one and a little bit of section two. And then I'm going to stop there and I'm going to let you do do the rest of this study on your own. I've put all these scriptures in here. So that you can grab hold of the truth yourself. Because there's just frankly not enough time to uh, articulate all of this today. So the question number one. What was the unique divine identity of Yahweh, the God of Israel? Or who was the God of Israel? And number two, we're going to talk about that a little bit. Does the Father and the Old Testament include Jesus in the divine identity of Yahweh? Therefore, is it right for us to include him? Because what the Father says is what's the most important. So, section one here, the beginning. 
So Yahweh is also, that's, is called the Tetragrammaton. The Tetragrammaton. It just means the four letters. It was first used in Genesis 2-4, which appears in our Bible as Lord, all capitals. God first uses this name of himself in Exodus 3.14 when speaking to Moses from the burning bush. The name Yahweh characterized and named the specific, unique identity of God to all Jewish people. When his name was said, it meant something, considering Yahweh is used close to 7,000 times in the Bible. So this was who Yahweh, this is who God was. Intrinsic of the name Yahweh to the Jews was his identity, which we're going to define. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, or Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. The modern use of God and the historical use of Yahweh are contrary to one another today. To the Jews, Yahweh always inflected his unique divine identity when spoken, making it the supreme, sacred name of the only God. It was the name that demanded soul and total worship. The name Yahweh was specific to Israel. It was the name of the God the maker of heavens and earth, the sovereign ruler and the creator of all things. That's who he was. And he was the Holy One of Israel who delivered them through the Red Sea and made them his people. So the Decalogue here. I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love and kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So the problem is... That many in the Western church today worship God as many different things. And seemingly in last place, he is worshipped as the things by which he identifies himself with in Scripture. When was the last time you heard a worship song entitled, The God Who Brought Israel Out of Slavery? There are not many of those. And so I'm seeking to prove that we are kind of removed from that identity of God, that he was the God of Israel. When we begin to see God as an ethereal, undefined entity based on our own feelings, emotions, or experiences rather than on the Bible, we are actually creating a God in our own image that relates to us based on our feelings and ideas. This effectively makes Yahweh someone he is not because our idea of God has become an idol. Idol worship is the inevitable result of not knowing what we worship. Does that make sense? Okay. Excellent. I've got a quote here. This is from the book that I had been reading. The notion of hierarchy 
or spectrum of divinity stretching from the one God down through the gods of the heavenly bodies, the demons of the atmosphere and the earth, to those humans who were regarded as divine or deified, was pervasive in all, in all non-Jewish religion and religious thought, and inseparable from the plurality of cultic practices in honor of a wide variety of divinities. So in other words, there was this pyramid scheme in the old days of there was the highest God and then there were these other gods after these gods that did other things and then they were worshipped based on this on that the practices in honor of a wide variety of divinities but Jews understood their practice of monolatry to be justified indeed required because the unique identity of Yahweh was so understood as to place him not merely at the point of the pyramid or the summit of hierarchy of divinity but in an absolute unique category, beyond comparison with anything else. And that's why the creatures cry holy, because he is set apart other than totally different than anything that man can or ever know. Whereas the tendency of, and here's the, another quote, whereas the tendency of non-Jewish thought, or Gentilian thought, is to assimilate such ideas of divine uniqueness to our patterns of thought in which the supreme God is just the top of the pyramid or the original source of the spectrum of divinity, the tendency of Jewish thought is to accentuate the absolute distinction between God and all else as the dominant feature of the whole Jewish worldview. And so what I'm trying to say here is that when we separate the identity of Yahweh, when we begin to separate it, when we even begin to define Him on levels of Greek-type thought, like transcendence and omniscience, those are, are not phrases that were used in the Bible. They're not phrases that were given as identities by the God of Israel. He defined Himself in these two ways. The Creator of the heavens and the earth, the Sovereign Ruler of all things, and the God of Israel, the Holy One of Israel. And so I think those things are good in studying the knowledge of God today. But I think that there's been this pattern of slowly losing the truth of who God said his identity was. Does that make sense? So this is who God said he was. But today man is spending hours and hours trying to identify who God was. The, the what kind of behind what God was instead of the who. Does that make sense? God was distinctly a who. In the per he was a person. In Scripture, he identified himself by the things he did. So, B, Second Temple Judaism was the time in which Jesus and the apostles lived. The theology of this time is what became the theology of the apostles, which ultimately became Christianity as we know it. What was known and taught at the time of Second Temple Judaism was the foundation upon which the apostles built their Christology. These are the roots that were deep inside the apostles, and they must be the roots that go deep inside of us if we are to see Jesus with unscaled eyes. So Deutero-Isaiah, which is just the chapters of, in Isaiah 40 through 55. I've never heard of that until I read this book either. Deutero-Isaiah just seems funny. It was considered the most important text after the Torah in Second Temple Judaism. 
the most important text. It is the main location in the Bible where Yahweh boldly trumpets His own identity to His people with His own mouth. These chapters hold a divine key into understanding who Yahweh defined Himself to be. And they're a primary focal point in this study. And when you get to the Scriptures later on in your own study, in section 2, you'll see the things that the apostles are talking about in the New Testament over and over. They're pointing back over and over to, to Isaiah 40 through 55. That was a, a, a text that they were so familiar with as to, as to identify who God was to them and who Yahweh was. They were extremely familiar with it, and they are quoting it again and again and again. So D, the two primary uh, descriptions God uses to identify himself. Just to say it again, the creator and the sovereign ruler of all things. Although Yahweh is defined as this in many different places in the scriptures, in Deutero-Isaiah we see that this is who God says he is with his own mouth. It's my second time to say that. This distinguished him from all other pagan gods of the day. In fact, it placed him in the supreme category of the God who not only ruled all things, but also created all of the things that he ruled over. So whereas other deities in pagan culture, this was the God of the sun. But the God of the sun controlled the sun and did not create the sun. Does that make sense? But the, what separated God was that he was the creator of all things, and he ruled over them. Sovereign rulership. Number two, the Holy One of Israel. In Deutero-Isaiah, this specific identity is used over ten times. Yahweh identifies himself as the God who delivered Israel out of the hands of slavery in Egypt and through great signs and wonders performed by his hand made a nation of slaves into his own unique people. Oh, the beauty of a God who chose slaves to be his own chosen people. That is a, that was a identity, hidden identity of God. The humility of the creator of the heavens and the earth choosing slaves. Number two here. I've, I've kind of already talked about this. Um, through the unique context of Israel and God's relationship to them, we as Gentiles... We, we have to understand that we were not entrusted with the oracles of God, is, is what Scripture says, that the Jewish people were entrusted with the Scriptures, with the words that God spoke. This book, everything God wanted us to know, or the Jews to know in that day, He put it in here, so that we would know everything that He wanted us to know. So this thing of, I've got to do all these qualifiers to know who God is, and I've got to fast and pray in tongues for this amount of time, or I've got to do these things. It's kind of not the system that God has set up. And we do a bunch of those things which are good things, and they do help us encounter God. But in, in that, the Bible becomes kind of this it doesn't become the precursor for our foundation of God. Does that make sense? It, it kind of becomes just this other thing we do. And so, I suggest we just return to studying this book, to letting it define who God is, and from this place, building on the knowledge of God. Because 
I, just, I can't get over that, that everything God wanted me to know about Him, He spoke and He put it in writing. And this book is the most attacked book in our day, so there must be truth in here. And we must take it up and begin to let it change our hearts again as they did in, in the old days like the Bereans who said, wow, Paul came to them, they heard these things, they were extremely fascinated, and it said, but they went to the Scriptures to see if what that man said was true. They weren't willing just to take what Paul said and let it define God in their minds. They had to go to the Scriptures and let the Scriptures prove what he said. So B, let her be there. God's identification through his own character description. And this is the, the beautiful one. Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. <laughs> I just I love that passage. I could just go into that story and we wouldn't get through the rest of the notes, but number one there, through the consistency of his acts throughout the Bible, God is proving himself to be the God he proclaimed to be in the above passage. In other words, throughout the Scripture, God is testifying of this one truth. I am exactly who I told you I am. I can hear Him saying, Gentiles, now that you've been grafted into the root of Israel, carefully read through this book. Carefully read through this book and see if I am who I said I am. Make the faith of the Jews your own. Did I nullify it or... Did I fulfill my promise to be merciful and gracious, slow to, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love? And just hear him asking us that question. Like, have you proved my identity for yourself? Have you taken the things you've heard in sermons, the things that you've heard through your years in church and Bible school and the Jesus on the flannel graph that sticks on there, and have you taken the truth of the scriptures and made God your own not, not, not made him your own but made your faith your own and made him your own he has made us his own we've been grafted in therefore we must seek to understand what the Jews did understand because they understood their understanding it's like they started off with an ocean and we Gentiles started off with a pea you know because we had no one, we, we didn't have, we weren't entrusted with the scriptures. We don't have this history of being brought through the Red Sea. We don't have these historical things that, that set us up. We're kind of, we come into faith as a Gentile. And I have, being a leader at IHOP the last few years, I just see, I mean, people come in, they have no foundation in the Bible. And their idea of God is so far off from the scriptures. But yet they have this passion and through time in the scriptures, they begin to become founded on the truth of who God is. And we're all there. I mean, I spent five years thinking God was someone he was not. And the testimony of today is that I am that person. I am the one, and I don't have it all together yet. It's like Nathan said, you know, I'm still holding up my finger painting, my children's finger painting before the Lord. And he's going like, wow, you're way off, but I like your zeal and I like your love for me and it's going to become a beautiful you know I still think it's beautiful and so 
not unto our shame today, but unto an exhortation that we would begin to do this, to identify who Jesus is. The final unique revealing of God's divine identity to mankind. Number three. These two identities merge together with great significance. The two identities we've just discussed. The creator and sovereign ruler of all things and the holy one of Israel. They, they merge together with great significance and heightened glory in the day of the Lord or at Jesus' coming when God is fully revealed I and when the mystery of God would be finished. That's, it's what's called Israel's eschatological expectation. And Bauckham just said it so incredibly. I had to put this in here. So in and try and, try and get this. It probably took me ten readings. But in the future... When God will fulfill His promises to His own people. Showing Himself to finally and definitively be the gracious God they have known in their history from the Exodus onwards. God will at the same time demonstrate His deity to the nations. Implementing His sovereignty as creator and ruler of all things. And establishing His universal kingdom making His name known universally and becoming known to all as the God that Israel has known. The new exodus of the future, especially as predicted in the prophecies of Deutero-Isaiah, will be an event of universal significance precisely because the God who brought Israel out of Egypt is also the sovereign, creator, ruler of all things. Did you get it? So, the day of the Lord will come, and it is of great significance because God finally shows Himself to be not just the Creator of heavens and earth, but the God who led the children of Israel through the Red Sea. And He's removed from that identity today in, in our Western minds. We, we begin to remove Him. So the conclusion of section 1, and then we're going to talk about Jesus. I wanted to identify Yahweh first so that we could get a foundation. So Yahweh has distinctly made His unique identity known in the Old Testament in two ways. Creator and sovereign ruler of all things and the Holy One of Israel. The one who delivered Israel from the hands of slavery in Egypt through signs and wonders. And these are the two primary identities by which God when he is speaking in Scripture, these are the two main themes that he continues to hit. I created the heavens and the earth. Don't you know, I, in the hollow of my hand, who put the stars in the sky? Who you know, drew the circle on the earth or on the face of the deep? And who was the one who brought you um, through, through the Red Sea, children of Israel? Who performed the signs and wonders? Did I not send the ten plagues? He, these are the two things he keeps saying about himself. And so I seek to just say today that then we must return to or, or begin to worship God again for those two identities. Does that make sense? So bringing all that full circle, that's basically what I'm saying. We must worship God as the creator of the heavens and the earth and the sovereign ruler of all things and as the Holy One of Israel. They're inseparable in His identity. And they are what Jesus fully embodies. So, let's just go to section 2 there, number 5. 
How long have I been going? I didn't start my timer. Okay, so we've got 10 minutes about, or I've got about another 45 minutes. Now we've got to pick it up. Five. We're not going to pick it up. I'm just going to hit a few points. We're going to read through something. And then I just want to invite us to position our hearts before the Lord. So, number A, the primary way, this is on page 5, letter A. Number 5, letter A. The primary way, or this is titled, Worshiping Jesus as the Unique Divine Identity of Yahweh. So now I'm, gonna, I'm going to, I want to make the point that if that's who God was, and that's who Israel worshipped God as, then Jesus also, fully embodying those identities... We must worship Him in the same way as the Creator and the Sovereign Ruler of all things and as the Holy One of Israel. Make sense? So the primary way that we worship God today is through attributing worship to Jesus. So something changed since Second Temple Judaism when worship was only attributed to the God the Jews knew as Yahweh. Christology was born through the person of Jesus and now we can worship the fullness of of Yahweh that was revealed in Jesus. Because prior to this, the full identity of God was hidden in a mystery. And the revelation of who God was, was perfectly, was purposely left incomplete by Him, so that the Son would have the same preeminence as the Father did in the Old Testament. Isaiah 45, 15, Truly, you are a God who hides Himself. O God of Israel, Savior. And I want to make that distinction. God of Israel, Savior. There's this consistency in Deutero-Isaiah where God begins to say, I, even I, I, the God of Israel, I, your Savior. And so he's, he's beginning to identify this other person in his identity is, is what it seems to be. And I believe he hid this identity. It's the third identity that God reveals in the New Testament. Not only am I the creator of heavens and earth, the sovereign ruler of all things, and the Holy One of Israel. I am the meek and the lowly one, the suffering servant, as we sang earlier. You've only known me as the one who did mighty things, but the mightiest thing I will do, you will despise, and you will not understand. John 1.1, 1, 1, No one has seen God at any time. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized. Through Jesus Christ. Let's jump down to number six there. Roman numeral six. So is Jesus included in the divine identity of Yahweh? Just want to lay forth these, the, the implications if he's not. And it's important to mention at the outset a simple principle that all Jews alive during Second Temple Judaism held to the strictest form of monotheism or the worship of one God, monotheist, believing it was their duty to the first and second commandment to only worship Yahweh and to not worship any other God. However, the simple fact that the apostles worshipped Jesus and taught others to worship Jesus was proof of their belief that Jesus was Yahweh. Does that make sense? Real simple. They worshipped Jesus. 
They were monotheists. They would not divert from worshiping the only God. It was spoken in the Ten Commandments. It was the foundation of what they knew. They would not stray away from that. And as Jews, they would not have risen up and began to worship something else if they did not believe that person was not Yahweh because they could only worship Yahweh. It was Yahweh or it was death. And that was the penalty. Letter B. So through proper examination of Scripture, leading to critical explanation and interpretation of the text, that's the definition of exegesis. So when you see that term in different books, that's all that it means. It just means examining Scripture properly and coming to conclusions based on the fullness of Scripture. So through proper exegesis of Scripture in the New Testament, it becomes clear that the apostles used the creative exegesis of Old Testament passages to draw clear comparisons of Jesus' inclusion in the divine identity of Yahweh. The understanding of Yahweh in Second Temple Judaism was the core foundation of the birth of Christology. <laughs> it's my daughter back there, amen in this. She's going, yeah, Jesus is God. So the implications of this, and this is what I was convicted of. He said to me, Stephen, you do not know what you're worshiping. Your faith is made up of every sermon that you've heard, and that's it. You've listened to a bunch of teachings, and you think you know me, and you do not know what you're worshiping. And I had no context. I, had no, I hadn't even... I had considered it, and I thought I knew in my mind, yeah, Jesus is God. Of course, everyone knows that. Why else would we worship him? And I want to prove to us that this may be inside of us today. And then I want to repent, as I have been doing. The implications, if Jesus isn't Yahweh of the Old Testament, then we have no idea who or what we're worshiping. If so... We do not know who died on the cross. The blood that was spilled could have been a mortal man's. And the Old Testament would be rendered meaningless because God did not fulfill his promises. Jesus could just be that man or that bloke or that mate. That man, Simon. With no scriptural identity. If this be true, then we as Christians cannot be sure of our salvation because only the God who promised Israel that he would personally save and deliver them could reconcile men back to himself. If Jesus was not Yahweh, then we have no identity for the Christ and thus we have no Christ and we have no Messiah. If Jesus wasn't God, if he wasn't Yahweh, if his identity isn't, the Old Testament proof, then you have no idea who he was. He could be Jody. It could just be any person. And you could be worshiping anything. But on the other hand, in contrast, if Jesus is in fact Yahweh, the God of Israel, then we have a 6,000 year record in this book of what Jesus' character is like. We have a complete history of the things he has said and done. And what we are to say and do in response. It is this man who in the same way Yahweh delivered Israel through the Red Sea. 
has led us through the blood-red sea of our transgression and led us through the wilderness of sin, laid his cross over the Jordan of our iniquity, and will ultimately deliver us to the promised land, which is the new Jerusalem at the day of his coming. Amen. And this is the beauty of Jesus being the God of Israel in the Scriptures. It is the hope of glory. It is the confidence that we have to stand before the God of Israel, whom we've known and whom we've read about in the Bible. We've seen His power in the story of creation. We've witnessed His authority in delivering Israel from slavery. We've looked upon His long-suffering through the prophets and experienced His kindness towards mankind in the narrative of the Gospels. And through Jesus' death, we have seen a new facet of His character, the ultimate representation of Yahweh's humility in His becoming a man and enduring the shame and disgrace of the crucifixion of the cross. It's by this book and this history contained therein that we know and identify the character of our God, who is the God of Israel. Who is Yahweh? I just want to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to read through this passage, and this is what did it for me. About two years ago, I was I was sitting in the basement. I was in IHOPU at the time, and I was sitting in my basement. It was before I got married. It was raining outside, and I was reading through the crucifixion account and a lightning bolt struck right outside of my window and I've never experienced anything like it the, I, I thought the Lord appeared in the room for a second I, I don't know, I think I may have fallen to the floor and covered my ears a lightning bolt struck outside the window but it was so it was such a powerful strike that it filled the whole room and it blinded me for just an instant the whole, because I was kind of sitting down, it was a dim room but the whole room filled with light as I read the crucifixion account. And it, it was then that the Lord spoke to me and he said, it was, I was on this journey, he was saying, you don't believe that my son is me. You don't believe it. And, and he said, I want you to read through this again and I want you to insert God into every place where Jesus or him is put in the text. And so my, my only hope is that this would grip you as it did me, and that maybe today you would go, wow, I thought, I believed Jesus was Yahweh, but maybe I didn't. And my, my point today is to turn us, to begin to worship Jesus for the fullness of who He is. That is, that is the prayer movement. That is the glory that He is due, to be given the fullness of His identity, which seems so simple but I've just never seen it articulated like this, that Jesus is the creator and the sovereign ruler of all things, that he is the Holy One of Israel, and that he is the suffering servant, identifying completely the fullness of God. So this is John 18. Then the soldiers, then the soldiers of the governor took God into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped God. They put a scarlet robe on him. 
And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on God's head and a reed in God's right hand. And they knelt down before God and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on God. And they took the reed and began to beat God on the head. And after they had mocked God, they took the scarlet robe off of him and put God's own garments back on him. And they led God away to crucify him. 